Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGrecker, and this is Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Shannon London, and she works for Chapters Recovery Center in Danvers. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. And yes. tell me what you do there. Yeah, so I work for Chapters Recovery Center in Danvers. Um, it's an addiction treatment center located in Boston's North Shore. Um, we offer a wide variety of treatment options, partial hospitalization, intensive IOP, intensive outpatient programming, and we offer evening outpatient programming for those that have busy schedules and are working and can't make it during the daytime. My role is I'm the Director of Recovery and Community Engagement. Um, So I do a lot of one-on-one therapy uh, with clients. I do group therapy and I do a lot of outreach uh, to the community and the surrounding areas and organizations. It's very important that we work as a recovery center, not just the staff, but the clients as well, that we work with a lot of nonprofits and underserved populations and be of service and give back. So I guess as you focus on alcohol and uh, drugs. Uh, yes, are al- ins- all substances, all substances. So <clears throat> I wanted to ask you this at the end, but I'll ask you now, how is the gambling coming up? we have many people with addictions to gambling? I've had a few people come through with gambling addictions um, that we have connected to appropriate resources regarding that. It hasn't been too many. We mostly are just seeing folks with alcohol uh, and substance use disorder. Okay. Well, I was going to say, hold on to your hat on that one because I agree. With, I all agree. The, with all the availability now to gamble on, Everything from horse racing to tiddlywinks, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be, it's going to be everywhere. Right. So I agree. Um, how did you happen to get into this uh, oh. industry? So uh, I am a person in long-term recovery. I've been in recovery. I'm coming up on 19 years in May, May 15th. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm so grateful because while I don't ever think you're ever too old or it's ever too late to get into recovery, I'm grateful for the fact that I was able to get it at 25 years old. Coming from Charlestown, if you know anything about Charlestown, Charlestown's one square mile. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. Charlestown at one point had the highest fatal overdose rate in Massachusetts in one square mile. So everybody was affected because we all know each other. Uh, I started drinking at the age of 12 years old, and it progressed over the years to other substances from marijuana to pills to cocaine, which was my drug of choice for a long time. Um, And then I eventually got into the Oxycontins, the Vicodin, the Percocets, and then it was heroin that brought me to my knees. And I, I got sober at 25 years old after overdosing multiple times. And I'm so grateful for that because... It's just not a common thing that someone my age from Charlestown who 
lived with a heroin addiction and who has overdosed get clean and sober at 25 years old and stay on that path. Um, I've outlived a lot of my childhood friends. I have, I've done more eulogies than I've been to weddings and baby showers. Um, I have four daughters. My two oldest daughters are 23 and 14 and their father died of an overdose in 2016. His brother died of an overdose in 2013. His sister died of an overdose in 2003. I did all three of their eulogies. So my children's Nana lost all three of her kids. Um, my that's, best. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty, that's pretty terrifying actually. Yep. And the, the people, you know, people don't realize when they hear about somebody overdose and how much, how it affects all the family and other families. And it just, just goes on and on and on and on, you know, it's like, um, so, so, you know, I, uh, I went into treatment in 2004, uh, you know, after multiple detox attempts and treatment attempts. Um, I remember, you know, there was Somerville detox back then at Somerville hospital, which is no longer there. And, you know, I used to think that, oh, I only need to go to detox for five to seven days and then I'll be okay. And just not knowing what I didn't know that that was only addressing the physical aspect and not the mental and the emotional aspect. Um, and so I would only go to some of the detox. I remember saying, I'll only go to detox if I can go to some of the detox, because that was my favorite detox. Like, think about that statement. Mm. Who wants to have a favorite detox? And yeah. I eventually went on to further care a couple of times. Um, I didn't get it. I would, I would relapse. I would use, um, my mom, my oldest daughter was, uh, four going on five at the time. And I remember I got a letter on my door from DCF and I was furious because I wanted to know who called DCF on me thinking it was like one of the neighbors or someone I had a problem with. And this is Charlestown and everybody gossips. And I remember sitting at the table with my mom and the DCF worker and I was badgering the woman like who called DCF on me because I could probably tell you something about the person who called on me, not thinking about what could potentially happen with my daughter. And my mom slammed her hand, slammed her hands on the table and she said, I called on you. And so my mother took temporary guardianship of my daughter while I went into treatment and I went into a program called the Meridian House, which is underneath the North Suffolk Mental Health Umbrella at now North Suffolk Community Health. Um, I was there for, it's a nine to 12 month program. I was there for 15 months. <laughs> wow. They called they called me their most challenging client. Uh, Meridian House, if you know anything about it, especially back then, it's a TC, which stands for Therapeutic Community. So it's not like a traditional rehab or halfway house. You kind of earn your privileges. The clinical team decides when you're ready to move to the next phase, the next level. Um, you earn your privileges when the clinical team says so. And, you know, it's based on behavior modification, so you have to confront yourself in the eyes of your peers and they kind of would pull you up and call you out on your behaviors. Uh, I was in trouble all the time, <laughs> but um, I, I, I learned a lot about myself and I finally completed that program. Uh, I went to school at UMass Boston to um, the addictions program to get my certification in alcohol and drug counseling. 
I then worked at a program called the Cushing House in South Boston, which was under the Gavin Foundation. I worked for the girls' side for about two years, and that's kind of where I started getting my feet wet. Uh, then I worked for an organization called the Charlestown Coalition, which is underneath Mass General Hospital Center for Community Health Improvement. And I worked there for 14 years as the program manager of addiction and recovery services. And I helped develop the Charlestown Recovery Court in 2012 with my former probation officer. Uh, I started going down to the courthouse. So my role at first was um, as kind of like a community navigator where I would basically handhold individuals and walk them through and navigate them through the system and connect them to the appropriate levels of care and the appropriate resources, whether it was detox, CSS, TSS, court-related issues, insurance issues, you know, resume building, job search, apartment, sober living, whatever you, whatever it may be. I started going down the courthouse on my own to advocate for individuals who were involved in the court system to go to treatment instead of going to jail because the majority of the cases and the individuals I was working with were all drug-related cases. And because of that, I started working with my former probation officer uh, and then the folks uh, leadership at the Charlestown Coalition where I worked in Charlestown Probation. And out of that, we developed the Charlestown Recovery Court, which used to be known as the Charlestown Drug Court. I was going to ask you that because we have had we had a judge on from Taunton who was runs the drug court in Taunton. Mm-hmm. And um, so is this an official thing now with the drug court in Charlestown? Yes, uh, it's still, okay. it's still ongoing. I still um, help out with that sometimes. I still go to all the recovery court celebrations. In the beginning, it was known as drug court. And uh, I advocated and pushed for the name to be changed to recovery court because it should be focused on recovery and not drugs. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I think we ought to c- continue with that concept elsewhere. Yes. I, I can I, see the point. You always, you, you seem to have a lot of energy. You are, you always been this high energy person. So let me tell you, I, I feel like I'm going to get emotional. Um, <laughs> Take just, your time so grateful this is really my purpose I believe what was meant for my harm is being used for good and um, being able to help people and give a voice to the voiceless work with people who are in the same position that I was once in is just something I'm really passionate about despite all the loss that I've suffered um I don't want to be remembered for how I died. I want to be remembered for how I lived. And I believe that is serving others and helping those who can't help themselves right now. Uh, Even after 19 years, like I still wake up so grateful that I don't have to put a substance in my body to feel normal, you know, or that I don't have to run around and chase drugs or like lie cheat and steal to be able to just get through the day without being sick and um i've watched so many parents bury their kids i've helped so many families in charlestown and you know the surrounding areas i've raised tens of thousands of dollars to help families bury 
their loved ones who didn't have any life insurance or couldn't afford it. Um, and just the thought of them even trusting me to do that still blows my mind 19 years later because 19 years ago I was a person that couldn't be trusted you couldn't leave your pocketbook or your wallet around me and so then fast forward to now to be able to to be trusted to raise tens of thousands of dollars for people to bury their family members friends and loved ones uh still blows my mind well you were definitely an angel now compared to the past with that again that was the past and it's where you're at today mm -hmm. um very impressed and then um along the way you uh ran a chapter of grasp yes which um uh, how did you how did you get into that and that position so i started doing that basically you know under the charlestown coalition where i worked previously uh, I reached out to the founders of BRASP and, you know, they kind of interviewed me over the phone. They sent me the materials and the literature. And I did that with a friend of mine. Um, we co-facilitated for a few years uh, at the Charlestown Healthcare Center. And we were doing it, we were meeting once a month and we had a pretty steady attendance. Uh, we would have about 10 to 12 people. Then what I found was, during COVID, we needed to up the meetings to every other week. P people needed more support. Um, and then right. it, it was after a few years, it was with GRASP that um, I decided to change over to the Sun Will Rise with Robin. So everything is still the same, just except for who we are facilitating the groups under. So it's no longer GRASP. It's now under the Sun Will Rise. So let the audience know what GRASP stands for. GRASP, GRASP stands for Grief Recovery After Substance Passing. And so I believe GRASP was founded. Um, there was a couple who had lost their daughter. Uh, and they found that there was all these different types of bereavement groups, whether someone was lost to cancer, gun violence, suicide. And there was nothing for people who lost a loved one to overdose. And yet that's one of the leading causes of death. So that's how GRASP originated. Okay. So when you were running that, you were talking to parents who have lost a child or and maybe a, yeah. a spouse, you know, and uh, which whatever, as long as they it happened with substance use disorder. Tell me how that wore on your mind. And, you know, that's I, I did that for two and a half years. And yeah. um, I found some of the every every week. I was like same thing every other week. It was pretty heart wrenching to to uh, listen to all the stories. And so how did you um, what was your what was your what I'm trying to say is what was your M.O.? So how would how would you deal with people that are fresh, you know, that just happened three months ago or two months ago? And and they're there to, to sit and talk with you. Yeah. I mean, when people would come in who were kind of who's who just lost a loved one, you know, obviously they were very raw in their emotions. And if they needed to cry, I just let them cry. If they wanted to pass, I would just let them pass and, and they would listen to the others in the group. Uh, if they wanted to stay after the group ended to have some one-on-one -on -one type of support, I would do that. If they needed a hug, I would, I would give them a hug, you know, um, everybody's grief is different. There's no expiration on grief. Grief comes in waves. 
Um, and you know, the different, we're all in different stages at different times. And, and you know, it, it is heart wrenching. And I would sometimes go through feelings of like guilt. Like I would have some sort like survivor's guilt in, in some way, like I, from oh, myself, yeah. you know, and you know, there would be people in the group who had lost children. There would be people in the group who had lost a sibling, who had lost a husband or a wife or what have you, or a friend. Everybody's pain is their pain. I just could never imagine. I've seen so many parents lose children and I just don't think there is any pain worse than that. And I hope that I never have to experience it. No, you're correct. It is the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody as an individual that I've experienced myself. So I know, and mm -hmm. it never goes away. It just, it's, it gets tolerable, but it's never, never goes away. Right. And that, how could it possibly, you know, it's the yeah. wrong order of, of the sequence. The, the, the dad's supposed to have his children bury him, you know, or the mother, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Right. I agree. And so you've been doing this and is this your main source of income? Yes. Um, yeah, it's my main source of income. I also do, um, I'm part of a trauma response team in Charlestown. So what we do is it's the, the Charlestown coalition. It's under the Charlestown coalition where I used to work, but the trauma response team is funded through like grants, not funded through like the coalition or MGH, which it falls under. So the trauma response team is a group of like, there's some clinicians on it. There's a psychologist, but it's mainly individuals who live in the Charlestown community who are leaders in the community that have strong relationships with the community, the businesses, the organization. So whenever something traumatic happens in the community, whether it be um, some sort of like gun violence or overdose, um, suicide, we as a trauma team respond to that by offering what's called psychological first aid. And so all psychological first aid is it's just some basic skills that you um, you kind of share with the individuals who are living through the trauma that they just experienced, whether it's just drinking water or breathing exercises or connecting them to some basic needs and basic resources we as a trauma team do whatever we can to help individuals, families, community through the crisis. You said you have four children? Yes. I know about the two oldest ones. Yep. How, how old are the younger ones? My oldest is 23. Like I had said, I just turned 20 when I had her right before I got sober. She was four going on five when I got sober. My second is 14. Their dad died, like I told you, in 2016. Then I got married, and I had uh, twin girls who are four years old. Okay. Yep. <laughs> you have your hands full. I do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, that's good. And everything is good with your husband now? Yes, He's yes. Everything's good. Um, he works at Wentworth Institute over by uh, Fenway in Boston. Uh, I work at Chapters Recovery Center. You know, we got our hands full, but they do keep us busy. And I think that that's what keeps me uh, keeps me young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't look your age at all. Thank I you. Would've, I would have guessed. 44 on Easter Sunday. Yeah, I would have guessed 30. So oh. 
Thanks, Tony. So yeah, you're welcome. But you have, because also because you have all this energy, you know. So what do you see in the, uh, as a future now for drug overdoses? What do you see out there in the field? Are we, are we going, getting anywhere or are we just as bad off as we were? Worse. Worse. I, think, I don't, I don't know. I, I have like different, different perceptions at different times, if that makes sense. So the whole drug supply is completely synthetic. Okay. Yep. There's, there's no real heroin out there. So we have chemists who are concocting like these bootleg fentanyls in, in their garages, in their basement. So every time someone goes and buys what they think is heroin or even all these pressed pills that are on the street. So there's all these pressed pills that, that are out there that might look exactly like a Percocet, that looks exactly like a Valium, that looks exactly like a Klonopin, that looks exactly like a Vicodin. And it's not that at all. And so every time you take one of these pills or you, you buy this fentanyl, you ne I don't care how good you know the deal, you never know what you're going to get because the recipe is different every time. And I know this sounds like a crazy statement, but when I was using, it was real heroin. Now it's not. And the other thing is that a lot of the fentanyl is being cut with xylazine, Okay. Xylazine is a drug that veterinarians use on animals. So when folks are overdosing and they get Narcan, the Narcan isn't working because Narcan doesn't work on xylazine, which is more like a, a like a benzo type of effect. And so now it's taken one, two, three doses to get somebody to wake up. And if they're not found in time, we both know what happens, you know, and I don't know. The good thing is, is that the FDA just approved over the counter Narcan finally. So people can go to the pharmacy and ask for, for Narcan over the counter instead of going through like their, I think their insurance will still pay for it, but you used to have to get a, a prescription and, and all that type of jazz. Um, I don't know. I just think there needs to be like so much more education out there. I think there needs to be like more resources. I I have a dream and a desire and a vision to open a recovery support center. And so what I envision that looking like is it's kind of like a one-stop shop where people can just come in. You need to go to detox. Okay, let's sit down and make some calls. We're going to get you into detox. Oh, you need to do a resume or do some job search? Okay, we're going to help you do a resume and do job search. Oh, we need to find you a sober house? We're going to find you a sober house. Oh, we're going to have a meeting over here in this room. You know, you need to get connected to a therapist? We're going to get you connected to a therapist. You need to get connected to a PCP? We're going to get you connected to a PCP. These are all the different things that are very important to one's recovery. They all play an important part in order for people to get on a path that's successful. And so sometimes in order for people to get, you know, their needs met, they have to get a referral from here, get a referral from there, go through this, go through that. I, I envision of having like this space where people could just come and get connected, mm -hmm. whatever they need to get connected to. We want, we're going to have Narcan trainings. We're going to educate you on signs and symptoms, prevention basics, Narcan administration. We're going to tell you what drugs are out on the street. 
We're going to help you with your legal issues. You need to do community service. You do community service here at the Recovery Support Center. That's my and, vision. Uh, so what, what will it take for you to get this off the ground? <sighs> I think that and eventually someone will... Um, someone there's going to be some development in the Charlestown community and somebody's willing to give us space. We would need to figure out like the funding piece, like through grants and stuff like that for like operationals type of stuff. But I believe, I believe that it's going to happen because I just believe it's part of my purpose and, and what I'm envisioning God has an even bigger plan than what I'm thinking of. Well, that's good. You win. Go ahead, get put it together. Let's get it started. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I tell I, you, a big part of my recovery, uh, my faith is very important to me. Very, very important to me. It's, it's it's number one in my life. I've been through more in my recovery than I've been through in my active addiction. And there's just, for me, I know everybody's different. For me, there's no other possible explanation as to how I got through the things I've gotten through without using other than drawing my strength from God. Yes. I, I've heard that many times that that was the, the saving grace to no yep. pun intended there to get, mm -hmm. to get it going, you know, yep. is have strong faith. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Wahlberg, you know, was a friend of mine and he, he was at uh, the, he was in prison and mother Teresa came mm -hmm. and talked to the prisoners and he felt that, um, that she was talking right to him, mm. you know, and it was a, was a change. It changed him for that day on, you know, he, he became faith-based the rest of his life, you know? Yep. So. Yeah. I've, I've always been God conscious. I just didn't know him as well as I do now. Like when I got first got sober, because I don't think it's about religion at all. I think it's about relationship. It's about a personal relationship with God as you know, as you see him. And, you know, I think a lot about like when I was in treatment at the Meridian house and I was constantly getting in trouble, I didn't plan on getting sober or staying sober. And it wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to, I just couldn't fathom that it could work for me. Like I saw all these other people getting sober through like AA and like other treatment programs. And I, I it can work for you. It can work for this one. It could work for that one. I just couldn't fathom being sober for the rest of my life. I, I mean, that's how I was thinking about it at the time. It's one day at a time, but I just couldn't picture going to a wedding and being sober, a Bunker Hill day in Charlestown and being sober, New Year's Eve and being sober. I just couldn't, a funeral being sober. I just couldn't fathom my life without drugs and alcohol. So I didn't intend on getting clean and sober when I went to treatment. I just wanted to get my mother off my back, DCF off my back, probation off my back. And I remember someone said to me one time, um, you know, when I was getting in trouble at the Meridian house, I overheard one of the clients talking to one of the staff members. And he, he said, I give that girl three weeks. Well, that pissed me off. <laughs> yeah. So when someone tells me I can't do something that just fuels me. So what got me through for a little bit was spite. And so then uh, someone had said to me one day, Shannon, uh, would you die for your daughter? And I'm like, of course I would, you know, because I think I'm tough. <laughs> and they said, well, why don't you live for her? And that struck me so hard. Um, 
because I love my daughter so much, you know, and I just remember her being like little and I always get emotional when I talk about this and like me being up all night partying and her getting up the next day and wanting to play and just like throwing her in front of the TV with the DVD and a bowl of dry Cheerios, you know, because I wanted to sleep after being up all night. And, um, you know, all I ever wanted was to be a good mother. And I just, I just didn't know how to at that time, you know, and they say like addiction is more powerful than the love of your children. And I believe that that's true. And they say, you got to do for you, do it for yourself. But I didn't care about myself enough to do it for myself. It was like my love for her that really motivated me to want to do to get to a point that I wanted to do it for myself. And then I realized I'm no good to her unless I take care of myself first. That's right. Like it says on the plane. Yeah. Before you before you put that mask on the children, put one on yourself first and then then put it on the child. And that's that's always good advice to take with you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be the strong one and you've got to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have any do you, you go to meetings? I do. Okay. And it's somebody who was in recovery. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the, the people have relapses mm-hmm. and that seems to be a big thing after a year or two years, someone relapses. And um, how does that, does that, does that gnaw at you? What does that possibility ever come by your brain? Or how, how do you adjust to that? Relapse is not an option for me and I do not allow it to be an option. Do I ever have, have I ever had like a fleet, a fleeting thought? Yes. I have. And so I, what I do is I take that thought captive immediately and I replace it with a positive thought, a healthy thought, or, you know, even like a scripture, you know, like I, I don't, I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for my life and I'm living that out right now. And I believe that there's even better days ahead. And so for instance, I think I also believe that I have an enemy. Okay. And so I believe that the enemy uses addiction as one of the tactics to take people down. Okay. When the father of my children died, I was 12 years sober. Now, by that time, I had already suffered many losses, including my mom who died of lung cancer at 55 years old. My mom gave me my three year medallion and died eight months later. I was pregnant with my second daughter when she passed away. And so when the, you know, I was devastated over that, that was very difficult to go through because here I am pregnant and I'm bringing one of the most important people in my life into the world. And I'm losing one of the most important people in my life at the same time. So to be sober and be pregnant and and grieving and feeling all these different emotions was very, very, very difficult. And what, what, what a gift right? That my mom could pass away and know that I was sober. That was big. Yeah. And so when she was laying at home with hospice, she was very heavily medicated, but we were watching the Discovery Channel. And she kept talking about the turtle on the Discovery Channel. She and the turtle, the turtle. And so about a month after she died, I had found a card that she had sent me three and a half years prior when I was in treatment. 
And the card was a picture of a turtle with the Band-Aid. And the card said, it's not the speed that matters, it's the getting there. And that's how I got here. But that was very, very traumatizing. But when my children's father died, you know, I was with him since I was 15 years old. We we had a long history, um, some good, some bad. We shared two children. And I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I didn't shower. Okay. And so his, he died out in California. It was this whole process getting his body back here and, and just all this crap. And so his backpack got delivered to my house. Now, whoever sent the backpack didn't know what was in it, but this is really like, this is how cunning, baffling and insidious the disease of addiction is. And I really think it's, it's, it's the devil in some form. I go through the backpack and I find the heroin that killed him. And so part of me, my mind, because my disease talks to me in my own voice. Shannon, people know that you're crying, you're not sleeping. So if you do just a little bit, nobody will know. Because I just wanted a little bit of relief emotionally. And so I would rather somebody punch me in the face than feel that type of emotional pain. And I really thought about it for a few minutes. And then I just like said, God, you have to help me. And when I said that, I was reminded of the image of my daughter at 16 years old, laying over her father's body, begging him to wake up. And I wasn't going to let her lay over my body, beg me, begging me to wake up. So I flushed it down the toilet. And the only way that I could have done that was not in my own strength. It just wasn't. It was, it was really like drawing my strength from him, from God. That was very inspiring for that. Did he see this, the youngest, the daughter, the 13 year old? Did he, did he get, was he, did he yeah. see her before she was born? Oh yeah. Yeah. So she was eight when he died. She was, she was, she was, she was like eight when he passed away. And so they were, yeah. So they were both very devastated and, and he was the last of the three children um, that his mom had lost. And the funny thing is, is like, like I told you earlier, I've done so many eulogies and, and what an honor, right? What an honor to be asked. Like so many of my friends lost so many friends um, what an honor to be asked to speak to, you know, so many friends and family members memory. Um, but his is the only eulogy I don't remember. I remember everybody. I don't know where it is. <laughs> his is the only one I don't remember. So I, I think I might write it again for myself. Um, I also do a vigil every year. So September is national recovery month. August is overdose awareness month, but every September, and this will be the 15th year, I do a vigil in Charlestown with the slideshow. Um, remember a candlelight vigil, remembering those whose lives were lost to overdose. You don't have to be from Charlestown to submit a, a, a photo. Um, but we have like over 300 pictures in the slideshow. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's when we first started the vigil, people we didn't have a lot of people come out because there was still so much stigma and shame people was still feeling a lot of shame around how they lost their loved one and now you know that people are speaking out more about how they lost 
their loved one, it's the vigil is growing bigger and bigger any, every year. And it's really like bringing people together and helping them heal together in some way. Right. It used to be back in not that long ago that most of the people got addicted because of prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And then and that took them down the road. And now it seems like even a casual user could die mm-hmm. because they're getting something with fentanyl in it that's yep. that their drug dealer is not a very good chemist. Yep. You know, yep. and and oh, sure. it's it's quite complicated to get that to be just right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to put my life on the line for a for a, a drug dealer's chemistry skills. Mm-hmm. And if you people can remember that, you know, and those these pills on the street are all counterfeit, most of them, because oh, sure. um, the the large quantities coming out of the pharmaceutical industry seem to have been cut back because um, they've been suing everybody. And if you noticed just recently, Rite Aid yep. is being sued by the state of Massachusetts for for their involvement of uh, providing pills for pill mills. Yep. And yeah. Did you um did you watch Dope Sick on Hulu? I did. I did watch the whole thing and actually the little side view. Um the very last scene in episode eight was filmed mm-hmm. in my house. Oh it is? Yeah. It uh-huh. is, yeah. Yeah, I- because at, at the time the CBS reporter was here interviewing me mm-hmm. because Purdue Farmer and the Sackler family the trial was going on for the bankruptcy and the judge was making a decision. Yeah. So they came, they came here to interview me. And while they were here, they also got on the phone during the evening news and interviewed the attorney general of Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tong, attorney general Tong. And so the, the CBS had that as a, on film in my game room. And so. Well, I have and, to watch- it again. Yeah, I, I was I was quite surprised that at the very end I didn't even know it until we you sat did. and watched it. No, we watched seven episodes before we knew that was coming. I and thought we, it was well done. Uh I thought Michael Keaton was phenomenal. It was hard though because I was watching, even though I lived through it, because that's how a lot of my friends died. Yes. I was screaming and yelling at the TV. And my daughter's like, why are you yelling at the TV? And, you know, I was just so angry just watching, like, all the the ways that they were pushing their way through doctor's offices and hospitals and the incentives they were giving out and just the manipulation and, you know, how conniving yeah. they were. Furious. Yes, I um, I interviewed Rick Montcastle. He is oh. the, the um, prosecutor. He's mm-hmm. the one that Sarsgaard plays him. Okay. And, uh, and um, he was on our show here. And and he was he spent four years producing that case. Wow. And then at, at the last minute, they were still they were trying to buy them off. The government was being bought off by the pharmaceutical industry. Wow. And he was he was furious. And then, you know, they so when they went to the trial, they all those guys from uh, Purdue Pharma were only charged with misdemeanors instead of felonies. And nobody okay. did any jail time whatsoever. And thousands of people died because of that, because of what they were doing. Wow. And, and again, it's the unfortunate thing where money can buy, yep. can buy you off, you know? That's so sad. People have no, 
morals or no values anymore when it comes to money. No, it seems I don't understand when when is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I, I always that always gets me. When is enough? You know, I, you have, I see sports guys leave a team because they're going to get 120 million instead of 100 million. Yep. Once you pass the 100 million, it doesn't matter. You know, you can't spend all that money anyway. Yep. Uh, it, and it doesn't usually bring you happiness. Yep. You know, I wouldn't change my passion and my purpose for that, you know? Yes. Right. So Shannon, what would you, if you were raising, well, you are raising some young kids now and you're still living in Charleston. Charleston. Okay. What are you, what are you looking out for? Cause you, you got twins now. And as they grow older, how do you, how do you, insp- I, I can see how you can inspire them, but let's say it was someone who was not you who was raising children in Charlestown, how would they, what do you, what do you recommend is to avoid the path that you might have, t- that you had taken? Um, I don't know. First, when it comes to kids, I think one thing that's important is to just be able to have open dialogue with your kids about the dangers of, you know, prescription drugs, or you know, illicit drugs, street drugs, whatever have you don't ever have the mindset of not my kid. Um, I believe that connection is the opposite of addiction. And so be not just parents being connected to their kids, but their kids being connected to, you know, healthy activities and outlets and things that build their self-esteem and make them feel good about themselves. Not to say that even if one's doing all those things that they can't, you know, get into trouble, but I think just to be open and honest and have open dialogue and conversations with your children about what's going on out there, you know, I think that's what's most important. Yeah, that's the peer pressure, I call it. Mm-hmm. And did you have, did you see that? Does Charlestown have their own high school or do you share a community? Yeah, we have our own high school, but it's not just, it's all of Boston. So like they have like, kids bust in from other areas. Um, so there's are some Charlestown kids that go to Charlestown High School, but then they also go to other schools outside of Charlestown within Boston. Did you have a lot of peer pressure back when you were? I did. I think for me, like when I was growing up, so like Charlestown was very different. And so like you had to have like this kill or be killed attitude. And so you weren't really, even girls, you weren't really supposed to show emotion or like vulnerability. And so if you did, then that would be preyed upon. And so, you know, I also had a lot of things going on at home. Um, And, you know, back then it was like, what happens at home stays at home. Like my father was an alcoholic and a drug addict and used to physically abuse my mom. Um, He was in and out of my life till I was about 10. But I have a lot of like childhood trauma of seeing him, you know, physically abuse my mom. And one thing I say is like, I believe that for a lot of people that trauma is the gateway drug and not necessarily cigarettes or marijuana or alcohol. Um, But I just didn't know how to deal with like my feelings back then. I really wasn't taught that. So I learned it from hanging on the corner with my friends and like trying different substances, starting with alcohol. Um, I I kind of, I mean, I guess there was a little bit of peer pressure there, but I think we were all going through similar things because we all had things going on 
in the household. And like I said, growing up in Charlestown, we had to have like this kill or be killed attitude and couldn't really show emotion or vulnerability or talk about our feelings. The one thing I'm going to gamble on here, Mm -hmm. most people would be surprised. How old were you when this started? When what started? When when you were on the corner drinking alcohol and. 12. I was 12 years old when I had my first drink. It was coffee brandy. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, 12 years. That's, that's the one thing I've learned is doing grass groups. And I've talked mm-hmm. to siblings of other people with addiction issues. And they've all told me that they first started drinking or started with pills when they were 11, 12, 13. So anybody out there listening and your child's in junior high seventh mm-hmm. and eighth grade this is the time to educate them don't be thinking you got to wait till they're in the 10th grade or 11th grade because they are hey. old enough they are old enough now to to uh to to listen and understand what's what's out there right 100 percent. now we got a few minutes left yeah now, what what question did i not ask you that you'd like to tell the listeners about your experience and the experience of others that you feel that you need them to know. Um, what question didn't you ask me? Um, oh no, you put me on the spot here, Tony. Um, okay. Well, it's all right. If I didn't, if you got everything out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just like people to know that it's never too late to change the trajectory of your life. There are support and resources out there um and you know anybody can do it anybody can get clean and sober regardless of what where you are at in your addiction it doesn't matter if i know if i can do it anyone can do it and i always like to share uh, one of my favorite scriptures because i think it speaks like to my life and what god has done for me and it's jeremiah 29 11 and it's for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That's very good. Thank you. Well, one, one last thing I want to ask you. You told me earlier you were in the movie The Town. Yep. And for those who've never seen The Town, you need to see it. It's one of those <laughs> memorable movies, yeah. especially if you're local in Massachusetts. If you're in Florida, you can still watch it and appreciate the North End and some of the scenes. But uh, Ben Affleck is is in the movie, correct? And uh, and um, a couple of people we know, Michael Yeber and, yep. and who who decided to get shot. And uh, Jeremy <laughs> Renner, Jeremy Renner said he should have stayed in the truck. Mm. Um, how did you happen to get into the movie? Um, so I was just like in the background in one of the bar scenes, but they did like a casting call in Charlestown uh, at the Charlestown Community Center. And so they had, you know, Everybody come in, try out, say a few lines. Uh, and then they called me back and asked me to do one of the bar scenes. I did have like a little speaking part at first, but then they cut that out. <laughs> and so yeah. I was I was just in the background drinking water out of a beer bottle. Well, that's, that that's the way it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. the way it was yeah. going to be. But it was, it was yeah. a cool experience. Well, we actually interviewed... Uh, back in December, we interviewed one of the the real guys who robbed the Brinks truck in the North End. Okay, he was he did twenty seven years, wow. and he is now out of prison. Yeah, and he's the one that wore the hockey mask, mm. and, and um, he was 
quite an interesting fellow. He's in charge. He's he's actually working with the program called um, From Prison to Prosperity. Oh, I love that. Yeah, they they have a program to help people get housing yeah. once they get out of prison because they can never pass a Corey test. Yeah. So nobody wants to rent them anything and nobody place to live, you know, so unless they have some dedicated friends. But when you're in prison 27 years, your, your friends aren't around, you know. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I yeah, well, they're, on, they're on the North. They're on the North Shore. Yeah. You can you can look them up. They have a oh. website. It's we'll from prison to prosperity. We'll, you know, do. So they, well, I really appreciate you taking your time out today to Thank you for share with me. us. You know, I, as I said, I, I love your energy and I'm sure you've done very well with this different jobs that you're doing. Mm-hmm. How does somebody get to contact chapters for recovery center how do they is there a phone number they can call so they can go on our website we have a website chaptersrecoverycenter.com our phone number is 978-924-8413 repeat it one more time yep chapters recovery center in danvers 978 9248413. And so when you call that number or even, you know, you'll get if you don't get a live person, you'll be able to leave a voicemail and then they will get a response right away via text or a call back. Okay, and can they request to talk to you? Yes, they can absolutely request to talk to me. And it's Shannon London? Lund- Lundine. Lundine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds good. And again, this is uh, Courage to Hope. And you can see that Shannon has definitely gives a lot of people some hope. And she's had a lot of courage to do all these things she's done in the past 19 years of sobriety. So we really applaud you for you. your terrific effort and what you've done and for saving lives on a constant basis now. You're, you're, the, you're a true hero in this movie. We want to thank you very much. I appreciate and- So this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Tony.